Good afternoon. Good to see you all today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21 is where we'll be at this afternoon. In his well-known work, Holiness, the late 19th century evangelical Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, A true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. We're continuing our series, Hope in a Hostile World, a study through 1 Peter, and that idea suitably sums up one of the main themes of Peter's first epistle, particularly our passage this afternoon. That a true Christian is one who knows war and peace simultaneously. A true Christian is one who understands the pendulum of joys and sorrows, comfort in the midst of affliction, confidence through uncertainties. That a true Christian is an exile, strangers to their societies, yet elect, chosen of God, set apart, in route to the heavenly city. Aliens presently in this world, yet at home with God and his people now and for all eternity. That's why immediately after presenting the glorious realities of the living hope that we have been born again, granted by God's great mercy in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, Peter exhorts his readers to prepare for action, to prepare for action. So this afternoon from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, I want us to continue to consider how you and I can have hope in a hostile world by remembering who God is and in turn remembering who we are in light of him. How God's holiness reminds us that we too are holy. So in order to elucidate what it means Christians are holy, I want to share with you three ways we can prepare ourselves for action. Here's the outline so you can follow. To be holy means we, point number one, fix our minds on future grace. According to verse 13, fix our minds on future grace. Point number two, according to verses 14 through 16, conform our conduct as God's children. Conform our conduct as God's children. And from verses 17 through 21, reverently fear our Father. Reverently fear our Father. I pray that this message will encourage believers here today the abundant grace that Christ has for you to carry you through another week of trusting and hoping in him, even through seasons of trial. I pray that if there's anyone here this afternoon who is visiting us today who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that the words presented to you this afternoon will point you to the one who has been foreknown before the foundations of the world, revealed for the sake of you, that you would call on him and trust him today as Lord and Savior. So without further ado, let's turn to our passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, which will be found on page 1014 of the Blue Bibles around you. If you are new to reading the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. So Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. In fact, if you do not have a Bible to read at home, please take one of those Blue Bibles with you as a gift from us to help you grow in learning God's word. First Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 21 says this. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What does it mean for Christians to be holy as God is holy? Point number one, it means we fix our minds on future grace. According to verse 13, look again with me to that verse, verse 13. It says this, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first observation you should see from our passage, and any time you see the word therefore, we should always ask ourselves, what is the word therefore, therefore? Especially in a passage like the one we have before us today, when all three of our points are imperatives, exhortations for holy living, what scripture is requiring for us as believers to do. The word, therefore, is even more significant in our case, because what follows is grounded in what has been said previously. And in verses 1 through 12, Apostle Peter had just celebrated the holistic saving work of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, past, present, and future for all believers. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, reminding God's exiles, you and me, that they are in the sovereign hands of God from verses one and two of chapter one. Peter had emphasized the certain imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance of the believers as heavenly citizens in verses three through five and reminded them of the inexpressible joy and the love they have from and for God the Father in the midst of trials as our faith will be tested for its genuineness and for the praise and glory and honor of God, persevered, guarded by his power, as according to verses 6 through 9. Then Peter crescendoed his praise of God, his great salvation to teach of the privilege that elect exiles have to live in the days when God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. What for centuries the prophets of God searched and inquired carefully about. What for generations preachers of the gospel have been proclaiming the great redemption of sinners, things into which angels long to look in verses 10 through 12. Therefore, having been born again to all of that, Believing and hoping in all of that, professing as elect exiles, as believers of this gospel, all of that, in order to live in those certain present and coming realities, Peter says, here's how. Hence, Christians should know that God's commands are always rooted in his grace. What God commands, he provides sufficient grace, you see, for us to fulfill them by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. 
In the words of Dr. Tom Schreiner, the indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ, is always the grounds or the basis of the imperatives, how we should live our lives. And to confuse that order would be disastrous, and the result would be works righteousness, or to veer into man-centered religion, or legalism, or heresy, instead of seeing holiness as the result of God's grace and power, as a response of his believers to the love of God in Christ. And I would add, if one has not been born again into a living hope that verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1 describes, what follows in our passage is impossible for any of us to achieve. Holiness is not simply uh, what we as sinful human beings can ever attain on our own. It is impossible for us as sinful human beings to achieve on our own. To be holy is to be entirely and solely from God and of God. Therefore, in verse 13, Peter exhorts his readers to set your hope fully above, more specifically, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, think about that for a second. What does it mean to set your hope fully on future grace? Think about what that means. We see two participles that modify the one verb, the imperative, set your hope. And those participles are preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So, to set your hope fully on future grace cannot be done casually or nonchalantly, if you will. You will not just naturally flow into setting your hope fully in this way whenever you feel like it, as the wind blows, or on your good days, much less your bad days. It will not happen naturally. In fact, Scripture teaches us we are prone to wander in our natural state and inclinations. It says in Romans 8.5, those who are of the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, and that's why Peter urges those who know God's great salvation in Christ— should continue to set our hope fully, wholeheartedly, completely. We should go all in on that very grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of days. The phrase, preparing your minds for action in its original language, conveys the idea to gird up your loins, the loins of your minds, which was a picture in their days in preparation for serious work or running. You see, the men had to tuck in their long flowing robes under their legs and wrap it around their waist in anticipation of what was coming. It was a reference to Exodus 12, 11, when God's people were instructed to eat the Passover meal with their loins girded, ready for the journey ahead. The idea was, this is not your home. Don't get too comfortable. Onward toward the promised land. You see, this is a message to elect exiles of the dispersion, to chosen pilgrims living in this foreign land headed toward heaven. It was a call to be alert. In addition, in setting one's hope fully on future grace, Peter says the believer ought to be sober-minded. In its context, Peter was not only saying that believers should refrain from drunkenness, from alcohol, but also from the distractions of life, any and all. Not to be bogged down by the ordinary attractions of life as to be lulled into drowsiness, which would cause them to lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling and delighting in earthly pleasures. Peter was saying to the believers, be self-controlled regarding your earthly desire. Be sober. Don't let your guard down in order to set your hope fully 
on the day of Christ's return. Peter says later in 1 Peter 4, 7 more directly, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says also in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So in order to be alert and not be hindered in your prayer, be alert and sober. In order to be aware of the devil's ways, be alert and sober. Set your hope fully on the great salvation in which will be brought before you. It reminds us of Paul's words in Colossians 3 verses, uh, uh, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will all appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, to be holy is to have our eyes fixed on him fully on his grace, holy on his return. So let me ask you this afternoon, what temporary pleasures, what earthly substitutes, what sins, what lies of the enemy and of the world, what stresses, what dissatisfying social media platforms, streaming services, or dating apps, what circumstances, what medical diagnosis, what substitute gods and idols have distracted your gaze from him today? What has lulled or robbed your longings for living hope, imperishable inheritance, the greatest love that we will ever know, inexpressible joy from eternal life with Christ? Is it your careers? Is it your possessions? Recreation, reputation, friendship, family, your bank accounts, your self-worth? None of those things, brothers and sisters, Peter is reminding us, are lasting. They are, in fact, fleeting. They are rotting. They are passing In Christ, what we hope for is assurance that it will certainly come to pass because our future hope is based on Christ's finished work on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection. Christ is the one hope that you can count on. Amen? Christ is the only one who will not fail, you and I. So brothers and sisters, how are you doing this afternoon setting your hope on Christ with alertness? Are you awake? With sobriety? Are you sober? How are you doing fixing your mind on future grace? Just examine your priorities this afternoon. Where do you find your pleasures these days? Do you have a hunger to read and know God's word? Do you experience intimate fellowship with God in prayer regularly? Do you have a passion to help others follow Jesus? Do you have an urgency to lead those who don't know Jesus to hear the gospel? Do you regularly have healthy fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you fail, okay, these are stressful, strange times, and you are failing at all those. Do you, as a believer in Christ, pray for the Spirit's help? Have you reached out to a fellow brother or sister in order to confess and seek help that you are not okay in desiring the things of God? It's been weeks, it's been months, it's been years. You're struggling in it. And you still profess to be a believer and follower of Christ. Where are you this afternoon in terms of alertness and sobriety and setting your hope fully on the grace that is to come? I want to recommend you three books if you are struggling in this or if you just want to grow in this area. 
what I mentioned earlier, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. If you have not read that as a Christian, shame on you. Should read it soon with somebody. A book by John Piper, When I Don't Desire God. And Future Grace by John Piper. Read it with a brother or sister and ask the Lord to revive and reorient your mind and heart toward Jesus, who is so much better than the things or that person of this world. Amen? Hebrews 12, too, encourages us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter or finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like Jesus, may we set our eyes on future grace. May we set our eyes only on Jesus. Everything else follows. On Jesus, who is better, who is greater, who is more worth it than all else. Hallelujah. Point number two, what does it mean for Christians to be holy? Point number two, it means to conform all of our conduct as God's children. Conform all of our conduct as God's children, according to verses 14 through 16. And it reads this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter presents in these verses a negative participle in verse 14, not being conformed to modify the positive imperative verb in verse 15, be holy, not being conformed to the world, be holy. In exhorting the believers to be holy in this way, Peter is recognizing and uh, reminding believers like you and me that the Christian pilgrimage is not passive. There is not a single person who have been born again that naturally, passively, inactively floats into holy living. Now, wait a minute. Listen to me carefully. What Peter is talking about in these verses is not regarding justification. Christians are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification, the state in which we have been made righteous in the sight of God, having been imputed righteousness, exchanged for our unrighteousness, when Jesus gave himself up as a substitute sacrifice on behalf of us on the cross, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. What Peter is talking about in these verses is that the clear evidence in which self-professing Christians are indeed born again to a living hope is the fact that they are holy And they will seek to live holy lives and will strive for holy living and will evidence holiness as God the Father is holy. You see, what we come to recognize as elect exiles dispersed in this foreign land is that doing God's will is exactly the opposite of doing what remaining sin in us makes us feel like doing. And you could reference Romans 6.12, Romans 7, Galatians 5.16 through 24, how the natural state of human beings don't do what God commands us to do. The fact of the matter is ungodly desires still beckon believers and tempts us to depart and stray from God on a daily, on a regular basis. Perhaps some of you even now are fighting distractions in your mind. As you're sitting there at church listening to God's word, And you're fighting to not think about what is natural to think about. I'm so hungry. Why is that person wearing that thing? Why is whatever, all sorts of things. And you're fighting to focus on what the word of God is teaching you and reminding you this moment. But here is where the impossible task of being holy as God is holy to measure up to God's standard of holiness is made possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our savior. And these verses gives us two main reasons, which I guess you could call subpoints. 
In verse 14, it says we are children of God. We are God's children. And in verse 15, it says that he has called us to be holy. Now, again, how can God require such a divine quality of holiness from sinful fallen man and woman like us? As shared a few weeks ago, because we have been adopted as God's children. According to Psalm 68, 5 through 6, John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Romans 8, 14 through 17, 2 Corinthians 6, 18, and Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Let's briefly look at one of those passages. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, page 944 of your blue Bibles. Romans 8, 14 through 17, which says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, Apostle Paul is reminding us because of what Jesus Christ has done. We who once were separated from God, we who did not belong to God's family, we who are not inheritors of God's blessed heritage now have been adopted as his sons and daughters. So now Peter calls those who have been born again to a living hope in verse 14 as obedient children. And we can't help but wonder how some of us are often so disobedient to God on a regular basis, don't we? And I think impact and force of why the imperative, the instruction of Peter to be holy as God is holy, is couched in the reality that we are obedient children, is a means to teaching us and training believers who we are because of who he is. Do you get what I'm saying? As obedient children of God, we can do this because of who he is and who we are in light of him. Simply, it just means we have some ways to go. And praise God for trials and sufferings that test the genuineness of our faith, guarded by the power of God, according to 1 Peter 5 and 7. I've shared with you and challenged our children and children listening here that the best gift that you can give to your parents is what? To listen well. To listen well. I don't need anything from my little Katie, Micaiah, and Emmett I just want them to be better listeners. My three children, ages nine, five, and two, are all work in progress, as children often are. No child pops out of their mother's womb fully mature and obedient. No child is is born and says, mother and father, I'm ready to listen to you. Instruct me, teach me. No child does that. That would be weird. (laughs) But anyways, my five-year-old son, Micaiah, often questions and challenges me when I tell him to do something, and I think it's in his nature or just naturally curious But earlier on, he used to say to me, you're not the boss of me. And I quickly corrected him and told him, I am your boss. I am your father. I feed you. I clothe you and wash you. So he doesn't say that anymore. But recently he asked me again, dad, why should I listen to you? And he was, I don't think he was rebelling, but he was just really wanting to know, curious why he should listen to me. And I answered, of course, because I am your father and you are my son. You listen to me because I am your father and you are my son. The truth is, I love all the beautiful children of NCBC and I think of them dearly and pray for them regularly as a pastor, but I would not expect Gabe Holly or Isaiah Cruz or Calvin Park to listen to me and obey me on a regular basis. I would just not expect that. 
I would have no such requirement for those sons because they are not my sons. I would desire they listen to their own fathers and mothers. I would require my sons, Micaiah Ryan and Emmett Sean Choi, to listen and obey me because they are my sons and I am their father. In a similar way, God requires obedience of you and me. He requires holiness of us because he is holy and because he is our father. In John chapter 8, verses 43 through 45, Jesus accuses the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So brothers and sisters, do you imitate your father? Do you obey your father? Are you like your father? Do you conform all of your conduct, all of your life to be like him? Not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, not returning to what you once were, the children of wrath when you didn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Are you holy in all your conduct as your father is holy? But perhaps more affirming, more empowering, more assuring, more promising reason why we as God's children can be holy, how we can measure up to the impossible task as our Father is holy, is the truth of verse 15, which says, but as he who called you is holy. He who called you is holy. The word call is not just a word that implies that God is calling you as a friend invites you to a party and hopes that you can make it. The word calling in this sense means an effectual calling, a powerful, divine, irresistible calling of God to live with God and to be like him. His calling is his authority binding us to respond. His calling is his supernatural sanctifying work in us from start to finish. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the father who sends me draws him. Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, from the earliest pages of Scripture, God has called himself a people to be holy, to be set apart for him, to be like him. In fact, what is so grueling for us to read sometimes in Leviticus, all the holiness laws was intended to show how Israel was to distinguish themselves from the evil practices of the surrounding lands and to come to understand no one is righteous, not even one apart from God. That is, save Jesus Christ in whom we find our righteousness. Amen? Brothers and sisters, as children of God, as God is our Father, He calls us, not being conformed to the world, be conformed in all of our ways, in all of our conduct to Christ. And again, as Dr. Tom Schreiner says, there is no conception of the Christian life in which believers give mere mental assent to doctrines. Yeah, I believe that, where obedience is separate from faith. You can't claim and profess to be a Christian and not live a holy life. Those who claim God as their father conform to be more like Christ in all conduct. As Philippians 3 verses 12 through 14 says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, 
Forgetting what is behind and straining forward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters of NCBC, what is your eschatology? What is your end game? What grounds do you stand on when all else fails? Apostle Peter again says in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He will conform us more to the image of Christ. He will bring us home. We are reminded from Peter living as elect exiles in the midst of sufferings and persecution. Our primary concern and aim is not, listen carefully, not evangelism or the church's survival in persecution. In a time when, according to major news headlines, Christianity in sharp decline, in the ongoing pandemic, when professing Christians have stopped going to church by the droves, by the thousands, our end game is not creative or innovative or pragmatic ways to draw more people to church or cater to people in the comfort of their own homes. But our goal, our end game, our desire, our command from God is be holy. Because the starting point for God's covenant people has always been and will always be holiness. In fact, for children of God, there is no other way. For to be like him is the best way to be. We recognize that. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 34, 8, and 1 Peter 2, 3 quotes this psalm, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who take refuge in him. And in Psalm 73, verse 28, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. NCBC, as our God is a good father, as we are his sons and daughters, let us seek together to be like him, to be more like him daily. Let's strive to be holy as our good and gracious father is holy. Amen? If that isn't enough motivation, here's one more. Third and finally, what does it mean to be holy as God is holy? Point number three, We reverently fear our Father, according to verses 17 through 21. Look with me to those verses again. It says this. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The main imperative verb Peter is instructing us to is found in the second half of verse 17. Conduct yourself with fear. What does that mean? The words surrounding it are the reasons why we as believers should conduct ourselves with fear. Verses 17 through 21 is actually a long run-on sentence. It's one sentence in Greek, and it's the most gospel-drenched sentence instructing us toward holiness. Why should the elect exiles of God be holy as God is holy in this hostile world? Why should we conduct ourselves in fear? Of course, the word fear in this sense, doesn't mean, in its, doesn't mean being terrified or afraid that God would strike us dead or send us back under his wrath in the moment we fall to our sins. Fear here means a reverent fear, which informs all of life. You can reference Deuteronomy 4.10, Deuteronomy 8.6, Proverbs 3.7, 
in Proverbs 9.10, among many other verses. But let me just read for you Proverbs 9.10. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You see again, verse 17 in 1 Peter 1 says, If you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deed. Again, the word call here is a present active voice, meaning a regular calling to for God's help, which is what God's children do. Children regularly call on their fathers for help. And if you do that, if you call on him as father, if God is your father and you know that he is one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, what do we do? How should we live our lives? We conduct ourselves with reverent fear. Growing up in my earliest and few memories with my dad, my brother and I had a healthy, reverent fear of our dad. When he would come home from work, we would be taught to stop what we're doing. If we're watching TV or doing homework or playing around, we would stop what we're doing and go to the door and greet him at the door. When we sit at the table for dinner, we would always wait for our dad to take the first bite before we were able to eat. And then after, when we would relax, we would love to lay all the blankets out in our living room and wrestle with my dad because he was a third-degree black belt judo master when he was in the army. And we would jump on his back, and sometimes my older brother and I would team up on one leg to try to get him to fall, but he was always too strong. He was huge. He was over six feet. I don't know why. I'm not six feet, but he was six feet. He was too big for us to ever take him down. And in the excitement when my brother and I would get too loud or too crazy, just one loud word from his mouth, stop, would freeze us in our tracks because our dad was dad. Now, that was my earthly dad. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a great dad. He was a sinner just like the rest of us, but we reverently feared him. So as Christians, as sons and daughters of the most holy God, how much more? Ought we to fear our heavenly father who judges impartially, who judges righteously according to everyone's deeds. Now, some theologians differ a bit on the interpretation of the text that Christians don't need to fear the final judgment because we will be all covered by God's grace. And that this verse is merely meaning the discipline of God through suffering in our lifetime. But I would agree to disagree with that comment and agree with the theologians who say Christians ought to reverently fear God for the final judgment. Because, why? Because God is impartial and he is a righteous judge who judges everyone according to their deeds, according to Romans 2.6, 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Peter 1.17, and Revelation 20.12. In other words, those who call God Father, who share an intimate relationship with God as Father through Christ, are not licensed to live their lives as he or she wishes because their lives are covered by grace. We don't do that. Simply, the Christian who has been born again of the Father must and will live in the fact as a child of God. The posture of the elect exiles is not that of a prodigal, but a son. He knows that he was ransomed from the futile ways inherited by our forefathers. He understands we were ransomed, redeemed, rescued, and freed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Born again believers know the value and the cost of the preciousness of Christ's blood over the perishability of money. 
And as theologian Leon Morris says, the blood of Christ does not involve the release of life as if life is somehow mystically transmitted by Jesus spilling his blood. No, instead, the shedding of blood indicates Christ poured out his life to death for sinners like you and me. Christ poured out his life to death for sinners like you and me. And Peter is teaching us in these verses, born again, children of God knows this good news, knows this gospel. Hence, we reverently fear God and worship God in wonder and ah, how could it be amazing love that he would die for me? Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. It's the best headline you will ever read. That God foreknew before the foundation of the world for his son, one true son to be made manifest or revealed in the last time, which means Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who eternally existed with God as God took on flesh and became human 2000 years ago. Why? Because verse 20 says, for the sake of you, for the sake of you, he became sin. For since Genesis 3, when man chose to deliberately disobey God and distrust God's word, we were separated from God on a consequential and eventual path to death and to face God's judgment and wrath in eternal hell. There was no possible way for us to save ourselves from sin but God. But God, through Jesus' sinless life, his substitute death, and by his resurrection, God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory, raised us with Christ in the newness of life, that whosoever would repent and believe and trust in him will not die, but enjoy this new life and eternal life with him forevermore. In Christ, our faith and our hope are secured in God according to verse 21. Amen? So friend, if you are not a Christian here today, we're so glad that you are here. We welcome you. Please come again next Sunday. I want you to know one thing. You are not here by mistake. You are not here by accident. The Lord is calling on you today. So let me ask you a question while you are here. Do you know the precious blood of Christ that is worth so much more than the perishable things of this world? When the world falls away, when people fail you and you fail yourself and you disappoint yourself over and over again, what will you stand on? I want to encourage and urge you to repent of your sins. That means to turn from trusting in the things of this world to trust in Christ. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. And I want to encourage you to trust in him today as Lord and Savior whose plan for you for thousands of years before the foundations of the world was so that you would come to know his redeeming love and his great salvation. Talk to someone today. Don't leave this place without talking to somebody about finding out how you can follow Jesus. I'll be standing at the back door at the close of service. Pastor Jeremy will be standing at the outside door. Or if you feel more comfortable, talk to somebody next to you, smiling with their eyes next to you. I'm sure they'll be eager to talk to you about how to follow Jesus and know Jesus. And finally, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, how are you doing? Seriously? Hoping in this hostile world? I want to encourage you, let's together fix our minds on future grace. Conform our conduct as God's children and reverently fear God as our good and gracious Father. Let's be set apart. Let's be set apart from this world. Let's be holy as our Father is holy. All by all by the great mercy and grace of our good and gracious God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful reminder 
that by your great mercy, we have been born again to a living hope. Father, as you call us as your sons and daughters, help us to know and believe and call on you as our Father. Help us to fix our gaze on you. Help us to conform our lives to you as your children. And help us to reverently fear you, our Father. We love you. We thank you for this reminder. Persevere us, we pray, in this hostile world. Help us to be a faithful witness to you, proclaiming your word, proclaiming your gospel to all we meet. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name.